W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listeners, you may be familiar with the term church plant, which is the establishment of a new church community in the Christian tradition. But what about synagogue plants or mosque plants? Well, this morning, we'll be exploring what it means for young Jews and young Muslims to create and, more importantly, maintain their own independent religious communities. What these communities look like, what they offer in contrast to larger, older institutions, and what challenges they have encountered along the way. I'm joined in the studio by Maraj Alarahat, chaplain of the George Washington University Muslim Students Association. Good morning, Maraj. Good morning. And I'm also joined this morning by Lauren Spokane, the lead instigator, I'm excited to hear about that title, of the new synagogue project. Hello, Lauren. Hey, good morning. Dear listeners, this intrepid trio is eager to initiate our interstellar exploration of interreligious interlocution. So strap into your space pods, it's time to get into some interfaith-ish. So, Mirage, for those of us who are not ourselves part of the Muslim community, who are outside the Ummah, I guess you could say. We are, we are OU, um, <laughs> if I can coin a, coin a phrase. Um, for those of us who are OU, what, what would it be like to, to be a young Muslim in D.C.? What is that community like for you? Are people coming together in big groups? Is it a tight-knit group? Are there lots of cliques? Are people joining the big mosques in town? How does it operate? So... I can speak from a transplant perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not from the area. I'm from Southern California. Most of the people that I've actually met in D.C. that are Muslim are not from this area. Mm. And if they are, they're from the far suburbs, we'll say Gaithersburg, mm -hmm. um, Ashburn, some of these places, Leesburg, that are far out. And a lot of these suburbs have large religious institutions with a vibrant, like, say, youth group or young professional group. But that doesn't really exist once you get, you know, closer into the city. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the Muslims are just showing up and then seeing who they can find. Uh-huh. And so where are they showing up to? So most recently, what's great about D.C. is most people show up in the summer. Okay. So this past summer, mm -hmm. it was Ramadan throughout June. Mm. And so one of the things that the Yarrow Collective, which I'll talk about mm -hmm. in a little bit, is we put on a potluck iftar on the National Mall in front of the, the Washington Monument. Okay, so and big we, event. Yeah, and we blast mm -hmm. it out to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll get, um, you know, over 150 people show up that mm. really don't know anybody. And that is actually the whole point, is to meet other people in the D.C. area who either may be transplants or moved or just don't have other 
people who identify as Muslim that they could hang out with. Mm -hmm. And so for you yourself, you said you were a transplant. <clears throat> when you moved here, was that type of infrastructure for young professional Muslims who are looking to connect with their spiritual community, was that in place or was that something that you were involved in, in building? So if it was in place, I could not find it. <laughs> okay. Um, I came for grad school, so the first year or so, I was just really heavy in coursework. Mm -hmm. I was involved with the MSA, just with, um, you know, small programming, things like that. Just and attending. MSA is Muslim, Muslim Student, Student Association. Association yeah. mm -hmm. Both at Georgetown and at George Washington. Okay. And that was pretty much the Muslims that I knew, because otherwise I was working and I was doing coursework. Um, near the Foggy Bottom area, there were a, a couple of folks who had this open-ended Bible study sort of circle going on, mm -hmm. really a Quran halakha. Uh -huh. The word halakha really just means circle. Okay. Right. And so it was a Quran circle, and they would just sit and discuss scripture mm. in a very spiritual, personal way. Mm -hmm. And this is how many people? This originally was three. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? So it's very small. Yeah. At our mm -hmm. friend's uh, apartment. Shout out to Kevin Barrow. Mm -hmm. um, and I was invited to come. Like, hey, come check it out. It's, you know, some folks are coming. By the time I went, there were about 20 people. Mm. And I, I got up there, I'm like, this is crazy, this is heretical, you guys are trying to access scripture by yourselves, you guys are nuts. Why is it heretical? Why, why would that so be? rewind, right? Okay. Um, I grew up in, uh, now I'm not going to call it a mega mosque, but like, you know, a large institution uh -huh. in uh, Southern California, two of them actually. And there was a lot of um, respect, awe, and also caution given to reading scripture by yourself. Hmm. Um maybe that was to control the narrative i don't know mm. but it was discouraged to do so without either guidance or something to that effect from a mom from a mom or somebody learned mm -hmm. and i can understand why because there's some folks i don't know maybe you've heard of like isis type folks mm. right they read scripture and apply things literally based on their own understanding mm. so yes i understand it's dangerous but this purpose of the space in foggy bottom was strictly spiritual is to build a personal connection. And our friend Munjid, who was Kevin's roommate at the time, he said, you know, there are as many paths to God as there are descendants to Adam. Mm. So let's see if we can find our own path. Mm. And let's do it using Scripture first, using mm. God's words first. Mm -hmm. So, so they got You me. went your own way. Yeah. You sort of put together your own organized study. Were you encouraged by your family or, or maybe other folks that you met when you came to D.C. to go to one of the more established institutions right away, like the D.C. Islamic Center, which is right there on Massachusetts Avenue? I'm going to not comment on the D.C. Islamic Center okay. on Massachusetts Avenue. Sure. Um, but anyone who's gone there knows that it's not really a community. Okay. Right? It's a prayer space. Got it. Okay. Um, some of the larger community organizations, um, there is Majid Muhammad, mm -hmm. which at that time was going through a change of their board when I first came. Mm. Um, also, you know, it was difficult to get to because... Mm -hmm. Cross you know, town from cross George town Washington. From George Washington. Mm -hmm. um, and that means like, you know, skipping a couple of metro lines. And right. we all know how much we all love so the red So convenience. Line. You wanted something it was in really, It was really convenience. Also, um, there was an interesting demographic shift. A lot of the congregants at Majid Muhammad were older. Yeah. So... This, you know, this Halakha space grew. Um, it moved to my apartment in Foggy Bottom when some folks moved out. And then we had like 50 or 60 people meeting weekly in my 450-square-foot basement. <laughs> um, and it got, it got real. Like people were talking. It was also it was interesting. It was intra-faith, right? Mm. There were a lot of Shiites, Sunnis, you know, Ismailis, mm. um, 
we had a couple of Zoroastrians, um, some folks from, from the Baha'i community, mm-hmm. as well as just general agnostic folk who just want to know what other you know yeah. God-centered people yeah. were talking about. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, it sounds like it was it was a good. Uh, welcoming space for for all those people that were that was the goal if you're just joining us this is interfaith-ish on wowd 94.3 fm we're talking this morning with miraj alaraha the muslim chaplain for george washington university you were involved with like you said starting this local holika group so this lasted for quite a few years right was it did the core group stay throughout or did it change over time well i mean folks pretty much stay in dc for about three years (laughs) and then they disappear Mm -hmm. and um it's very difficult for some of these ad hoc programming to continue because Mm -hmm. they're people or apartment or dining room based and so as people leave these things tend to die um, I was committed because I saw so much benefit in it for myself mm. and for others that um, my wife Sophia and I continued to host it mm. as much as possible. And then we kind of sh- we moved out of Foggy Bottom because we had a second child and it was just too hard to mm. maintain. Um, and we moved that 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 study space to Arlington, and then no one came. Mm. And I was like, okay, too far afield. It was too far. (laughs) You're in the burbs. Like Clarendon, (laughs) 500 feet from the metro, is Uh just too far. (laughs) So we actually moved it back to Foggy Bottom in the dedicated prayer space that is there at um, George Washington University. Cool. All right. Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. I want to bring in our other uh, guest, Lawrence Buchan, one of the founders of the New Synagogue Project. So, Lauren, I'm curious if your experience is similar to Mirage's, where young Jews are are looking for spaces other than the big Jewish institutions. Yeah, so um, it's interesting. Uh, In D.C., uh, like a bunch of other big cities that have um, a big Jewish population, uh, it's a, a little bit a little bit of the reverse, actually, that there are lots of opportunities and offerings for young Jews. So we've got Sixth and I, we've got offerings f- through the JCRC, the the JCC. Um, there are uh, there's Gather DC. There are a bunch of different organizations um, because there's you know there's a big motivation inside the uh, kind of mainstream institutional Jewish community. Uh, around continuity to mm. make sure that we continue to to exist as mm-hmm. Jews and that young people meet other Jews and make Jewish babies. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff around 20s and 30s. You know, it's it's not always though. Um, often it is kind of by and for um, young folks, um, but also there are a, full, uh, a bunch of us who actually do want to lay roots in this city. And um, and are looking for a place not just to serve us when we're young and single, but also as we're moving through different parts of our lives and also who want to be a part of multi-generational community mm-hmm. and really deep uh, build deep, longstanding relationships with other communities who are here in D.C. and, and build partnerships of solidarity with other communities targeted by white supremacy and who are um, kind of witnessing and want to be a part of... Um, trying to combat some of the conditions uh, and, and elements of change in this city that are affecting our neighbors mm-hmm. um, and, and causing displacement and all these things that we're kind of living inside of and implicated by and affected by um, that we want to be really, really rooted here. Um, uh, even as there, you know, of course, there's transients and people are coming in and out, uh, but we really wanted to build an institution that was ours and that um, uh, could... Uh, could stick around as mm-hmm. as we're building families and we want to raise yeah. raise kids. So tell us about then the new synagogue project and what's what's the mission of this project? What does it look like? What's the demographic that you're trying to hit with it? 
So we say that the New Synagogue Project is a spiritually vibrant, radically inclusive Jewish community that is um, working to reflect our vision for a world of justice, equity, and liberation. Mm. That's a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. So social justice is really at the center yeah. of, of the community we're building. Um, and as I said, by and for um, young people and folks across generations, um, single folks and folks with young kids and families, um, queer, trans, um, Jews of color, white mm. Jews, uh, really centering folks who um, often actually feel marginalized in, in other Jewish communities or have had different experiences throughout their lives, whether it's, you know, the synagogue where they grew up or whatever community that they, they've been a part of, um, of not necessarily feeling like they belong or that their experience or identity is at the center of the mm -hmm. community. So are you all positioning yourselves, presenting yourselves as a alternative to having membership at one of the other main synagogues in town? Or is it more of a complement to regular activity with some of those other groups that you mentioned earlier? I think it's some of both. Like there are lots of folks um, who have found a home in a synagogue um, or other Jewish community in town. And also want a space to do different kinds of social justice work maybe than um, their community does or are interested in being a part of our um, Jews of color cohort and, and a part of um, that particular community in addition to their synagogue. Um, but we are building a synagogue um, to complement the ecosystem. Uh, I mean, we're really lucky in D.C. We have this really rich, vibrant ecosystem of Jewish institutions and communities um, and yet the appetite is even larger than that. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are folks who are even though there are so many offerings are still looking for something else or j just, you know, haven't found their their Jewish home yet. Yeah. And it's in the Petworth neighborhood. Yep. So do you aspire then to have a permanent building down the road? You know, um, time will tell mm. um, where we land right now. We've been primarily meeting in two black churches in in Petworth, both historic D.C. churches um, First Baptist uh, and Church of Petworth and Israel Metropolitan CME. Mm. Um, and so we're going to continue to sustain those partnerships. And it's been a really sweet, um, meaningful thing for us to be able to share space with those communities. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. Great. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking with Lawrence Spokane, the lead instigator at the New Synagogue Project, and Miraj Alaraha, the Muslim chaplain at George Washington University. Miraj, in your role as a chaplain, what are your responsibilities? Is it leading prayer services? Are you, are you providing spiritual guidance? Is it distinctly different from being a traditional leader like an imam? I think it's hard to describe what a traditional leader actually might look like, mm. um, but let me tell you some of the things that I do. Great. Um, I make myself available to any of the students that need to talk for whatever reason. Um, oftentimes, that, end up, that ends up being like career advice sometimes, which is fine. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there are spiritual crises. Um, sometimes there's just questions about the faith mm. and um, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, I also uh, lead the Friday congregation at least once a month mm. there. We do that in a shared space with Western Presbyterian in Miriam's Kitchen, which a lot of folks are familiar with in Foggy Bottom. Um, I also have the Wednesday night Quran circle that takes place there, as well as other ad hoc kind of workshops, classes, things that people are kind of struggling with, and we have that. Um, we also get together, which, which seems unfortunate. Um, it seems very regular now after some major tragedy 
right? Mm. After somebody or some group has been attacked or singled out and we get together and provide ourselves a safe space to kind of just talk about our feelings, a lot of those things are missing in um, a lot of people's lives and mainstream religious institutions, I feel. Mm -hmm. And these are uh, mostly college students, I assume, that are coming since it's housed in and around GW? You would think that, wouldn't you? Are young professionals also coming? So, yeah, we get a lot of the young professionals, uh, particularly for the the Quran circle, Mm. right? When we do scripture study, it's, you know, very few undergrads. Uh, What's interesting about GW also is that there's a large international student cohort. Sure. Um, A lot of folks coming from, you know, a lot of predominantly Muslim nations where they see Islam differently. And it's always fun to have their eyes open up to see, hey, how are young Muslims in a non-Muslim majority country practicing their faith and what is important to them. Mm-hmm. So are you seeing or, or hearing from the other Muslim institutions, the larger groups, that they are upset or lament the fact that you're you're keeping the young Muslims right there as opposed to joining up with, with activities that are happening at their own communities? Uh, we have been approached by... Um, at least two different large uh, mosques that asked us to kind of um, fold into some of their existing young uh, professional Muslim kind of groups. Um, those didn't really go anywhere. I was, I'm not really opposed to this idea of belonging to a larger established religious institution, as long as the space is still there where people feel safe to kind of voice their thoughts, opinions, identities, mm-hmm. however that may be. Um, but a lot of this is logistics. There's just not a lot of spaces where mm. people live. Um, you know, aside from Masjid Muhammad, right, which is now vibrant, and folks like Lauren Schreiber at Muhammad Oda and Center DC have this kind of third space. But like myself, they also encourage folks, when possible, to you know be part of um, established religious institution. If there's something that you're not getting there, then great you know, come join us or we'll do mm-hmm. additional programming. Mm-hmm. But we don't feel there's a need to, like, reinvent the wheel here. Yeah. What about this issue of, of continuity that Lauren spoke to earlier? Of uh, are, are Muslim institutions also wary of young Muslims, you know, finding a way to, to, to meet a spouse and, and get married and then have a home community when, the, when, when they've got kids? Are they worried about losing them if they're in more of these, these independent spaces? They should be. I don't think they are, but they should be. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with um, the the identity of young professional Muslims identifying as Muslim is decreasing, right? For for a variety of reasons, and part of that refer you know happens. Um, you don't actually feel like you need to belong to a religious institution, which is one thing that's very great about the Muslim faith is you can just show up anywhere that they're having a Friday prayer and you're good. Like no one's going to be like oh. Welcome to our congregation. Can I show you to your seat? Like, no, you just walk in, take shoes off, have a seat. Mm. Um, And because of this, people feel um, a lack of connection with their home religious institution. For example, I also lead um, Friday congregational prayers once a month at the Church of the Epiphany on 13th Street. Okay. 13th and G downtown. Um, That is organized by the Adams Center, which is based out of Sterling, Virginia. Um, They organize it because they have a longstanding relationship with that church. Now... It's like a satellite community. Yeah, but yeah. So, so at, the Adams uh, community has like six or seven satellite mm-hmm. Friday congregations. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens is this is pretty much once a week that the you know the congregants are actually coming to some type of religious service. So, other than this, they're not actually going to the home institution or anything like that. So, as long as we have these satellite things, 
um, working professionals in D.C. are not going to have any type of real connection mm. with these larger religious institutions. Mm -hmm. I just don't see that happening. Mm. Lauren, how about you? Have have there been criticisms from from larger established Jewish uh, communities um, of starting something new instead of innovating within the existing structures? You know, we've actually um, heard some heard kind of the opposite from some of the larger institutions mm. uh, and rabbis who really see the need for what we're building. Um, you know, you mentioned that we're based in Petworth, so one thing is that. Um, there are a lot of Jews in Petworth and the surrounding neighborhoods, 16th Street Heights and Mount Pleasant, Columbia Heights, uh, but no synagogue, no Jewish institutions. Mm. So um, that's one thing that, you know, um, among uh, institutional Jewish leaders in the city, they see the need uh, just geographically for them, for there to be an institution that's mm. um, engaging a lot of the young, that we have a lot of young families in this neighborhood. Um, and also um, see that there are folks who want to engage politically. And, and then, you know, there's a whole community of activists who are involved in Palestinian solidarity work or, you know, local social justice work um, who uh, can't always um, be served by uh, existing institutions. And mm -hmm. so I think folks Because those institutions see the need. are more conservative maybe than their political leanings? Well, I think particularly when it comes to, you know, engagement around Israel advocacy that... Um, you know, it, it can be hard to kind of be a big enough tent to um, include folks who are working, um, uh, you know, along a, a wide spectrum uh, around that issue. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think, um, I, you know, because of this kind of broader Jewish interest in continuity, I think when folks see a lot of young Jews getting together and actually, you know, um, there's this whole... Um, thing about millennials that we don't want to join institutions and among Jewish institutions feeling like, um, you know, people are leaving synagogues and there's this narrative that's been built that we won't pay synagogue dues, that we won't join institutions. Well, you know, we we had a first event six months ago. We launched membership three mm. months ago. And we said, like, we do want to have claim a stake in this community. And we've got uh, over 100 families that now have individuals and families that have joined as a member and are actually paying dues. Um, that's 185 people. Um, we've raised over $100,000 uh, from uh, people who want to contribute to make this institution um ours and exist. And uh, so anyway, uh, that's all to say that um, uh, I think there's 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 a lot of positive feeling around seeing uh, young Jews who want um, to be a part of Jewish community and 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 build the kind of Jewish experiences that, that they want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. This is Interfaith-ish, and I'm your host, Jack Gordon. I'm joined today by my guest, Miraj Alaraha, the chaplain of the George Washington University Muslim Student Association, and Lawrence Spokane, one of the founders of the New Synagogue Project. In the first half of our program, each of our dear guests answered some of my questions, but now in the second half, as we do every episode, it's time to switch it up and my guests will have the chance to ask each other some questions of their own. Anything that they've wanted to know about each other's story or traditions or experience, things they may have never asked, never known to ask, or just flat out misunderstood. I'm particularly excited to hear comparisons that both of you might have between your experiences organizing independent activities in each of your religious communities. So, Mirage and Lauren, do you think you have dealt with some similar-ish? I think we definitely have um, dealt with some similar-ish. Um, um, I was wondering, though, if I could ask um, 
what led you to kind of create something new instead of making change in whatever existing institution you were a part of? Well, um, you know, the origin story of um, of the project is really that our rabbi, Rabbi Joseph Berman, has had this vision of creating a um, radically inclusive, spiritually vibrant, um, liberation-focused synagogue for a long time. Um, and when he came to D.C. and um, started talking to other folks who were kind of seeking out their Jewish home here, found that a lot of people like myself were were really looking for that, too, and really, really craving that. Um, and some folks have, you know, lots and lots of folks have found um, what they want in existing institutions. And as I said earlier, there's there's an even bigger hunger. Um, you know, there was a, a Jewish demographic study in the last year that showed that uh, Washington, the Washington metro area is the third largest Jewish community in the country, which I think surprised a lot of us. Um, but I, I think it said about a quarter, um, you know, don't quote me on that, <laughs> the study's out there, but around a quarter of that population is affiliated in some way with the Jewish community, and which means there's lots and lots of folks who aren't. Um, so I think we felt like even though there are a number of really wonderful institutions, the fact that some of us who really wanted to Jewishly engage, um, couldn't, hadn't yet found what we were looking for, that, um, it was worth creating our own institution. And it also creates a space where we can be innovative and creative and really like deeply engaged in, um, informing and shaping the kind of Jewish practice, kind of Jewish ritual, um, programs that we want to offer for our high holidays. Our, our rabbis wrote our own prayer book. Um, and so uh, it's just been, yeah, it's been a lot of fun to to kind of create from scratch. The reason I ask is um, I think one of the reasons, at least the reasons that um, like our group gives itself is we've kind of created this third space because there wasn't like the religious institution somewhat local that was open and available. Um, and I wonder now, even if there were like a bunch of, of mosques in DC, um, I mean, when I say DC, I mean, you know, population center DC, right. Mm -hmm. Um, which there are, there are several, right. There's, there's at least three or four in Southeast. There's one, um, in Northeast 18th and Monroe. There's much Muhammad. There's first Hijra, the Ethiopian mosque up on six, upper 16th street. And then there's the Islamic Center on Massachusetts. And these are all great communities. They all kind of serve their own communities. And um, one thing I don't want to do is a bunch of, you know, transplants, you know, plus in D.C. they're all kind of alpha types, right? <clears throat> Come into an existing mosque, you know, structure and just kind of take it over. Mm. Um, I think that's doing a disservice to the established community that's mm. there. Um, and... I think that's something that uh, we don't really think about often. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that you're saying a quarter or more or less, not quoting you on the stat of <laughs> uh, Washington area Jews are unaffiliated. I mean, there was that whole like movie done on unmosked, right? And this was, in, you know, from my perspective, it was very interesting. It's like there's a large population within the country and probably throughout the world that does not affiliate with any type of mosque for many different reasons. And a lot of them might have to do with particularly the fact that there is a lack of space for women. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. So much so that one of the imams in one of the local mosques in Annandale actually created his own third space and called it Make Space, right? Shout out mm -hmm. to Imam right? And this was basically done to kind of, you know, shift themselves away from, like, the traditional mosque infrastructure, which is like, hey, this is a prayer space for males, primarily on Fridays. Everything else is kind of superfluous. And... 
I think just like you, like we wanted to do more. Mm-hmm. There was, mm-hmm. you know, there was hunger, particularly on the spiritual side. There's a lot of jurisprudence in Islam, and I know I'm talking, I'm talking to my fellow, my Jews here. On the yeah, side right. right. We got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's also been a lot of, I'm not going to say unnecessary, but let's say like an overemphasis on the jurisprudence of adherents themselves. And so one of the first things people will ask is like, oh, is this halal? Like, can I do this? Can I eat this? Can I have this? Can I wear this? Mm-hmm. And it's like, why is that the first question? Right? Why can't we build, you know, a spiritual foundation? Like, is this going to make me a better person? Will this make me closer to God? And not like the jurisprudential question mm-hmm. first. And that was actually a lot of what we were trying to uh, create. And that was coming from, you know, our own thirst, the group, mm-hmm. me, myself, my wife and others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm super curious about that um, because I have heard from, you know, Muslim friends um, and, uh, you know, I've done a lot of interfaith organizing in my career and, you know, working with Muslim organizers who are working inside of mosque structures that um, while in American Judaism, we have these like um, multiple streams, denominations of Jewish life um, and religious practice. Um, you know, we have ortho, you know, actually, you know, a bunch of different variations of Orthodox Jewry um, who are, you know, uh, particularly focused around Jew- Jewish jurisprudence, um, halakha, we call it the um, Jewish law. Um, uh, we've, but we also have, you know, conservative Jews, reformed Jews, reconstructionist Jews, renewal Jews, um, all these different streams. So there's this kind of um, diversity of Jewish practice that's um, kind of built in the, into the fabric of American Jewish life. And, and part of that, you know, came over from the old world, but part of it, a lot of it has um, kind of developed in the context of, um, you know, multiple generations being here in the U.S. So for a lot of folks, it's not actually so radical or new to to imagine that you could um, kind of be creative with Jewish ritual, though we've certainly encountered folks who for whom that that is a new idea. And, and that's been really liberating for them. Um, so I'm really curious to kind of see um, or, or hear from you about um, the Muslim American experience. If you see kind of part of the innovating that you're doing, the folks that you're working with are doing. Um, do you imagine that, that that might lead down the road to some, some more like multiplicity of, of Islamic formation, identity? Uh, will there, there one day be like an Orthodox, Orthodox and, and, and more liberal Muslim um, configuration, mosque, denomination, that sort of thing? Um. Well, this this is going to be recorded forever on the Interfaithish podcast, so I'll be careful. But I, <laughs> I just want to say, I won't that, hold you to any yeah, predictions. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm an economist, so you shouldn't hold me to any predictions. <laughs> um, I hope not. Um, I think the ritual of the tradition um, that has remained fairly unchanged for over 1,400 years um, has remained so um, because of this adherence to the tradition um but keep in mind that the ritual i feel is a very small component of the tradition um and you know as you know and for those you don't know uh, muslims pray five times a day the good ones right um um, and this is done primarily um individually right either one's home or in a mosque if you show up at time for a congregation but the main purpose that the mosque has been serving has not been for a community center or for people to kind of gather. It's been for Friday congregational prayers. 
and according to a lot of folks um, and different schools of thought, this is only compulsory to attend for males. Um, I, I don't particularly believe that. Um, but as a result of that, um, that has been brought over from the old world, um, a lot of women, one, don't feel that it's necessary for them to go. Um, also, there's no space for them because it's meant to be primarily for males who have to go. And so if you think about attending a religious institution or a mosque or a community because you have to once a week, you're not really going to build a very vibrant community. Um, there's been now a shift, I feel, and there always was uh, in Southern California where I grew up, um, Islamic Center of Irvine, when there was some scholars there and the imams, they would have like two or three different weeknight gatherings where people just go either classes or discussions or, you know, very spiritual in nature. And I found those things remarkable. Um, and I hope that mosques are going to do that because if it's just a place to pray once a week on a Friday afternoon, it's it's not really serving its real purpose. Um, but everything aside from that ritual aspect is completely open. And you mm -hmm. can see it from like, you know, from Indonesia to Morocco, like people have like very different um, non-ritual ways that they practice their faith, particularly on the spiritual side. And I was, I'm hoping that that picks up because, I mean, the ritual is just one aspect. In fact, I personally believe the ritual is just a means to knowing, right? Um, but if you focus on the ritual, you've, you've kind of gotten lost. Mm -hmm. So do I think there's going to be this, like, unorthodoxy? I mean, it's already kind of starting, right? We've mm -hmm. seen it. Um, services in, in English, right? Um, I'm not going to say women-led um, sermons are outside the fold of orthodoxy there is some um there's some precedent for that but i mean i don't think we're going to see like an extreme shift um and like i said i hope not so i i'm curious about that answer um because i hear you saying uh you don't don't imagine or hope for um kind of a more um uh, a break out of orthodoxy, but I also see you really longing for um, some more flexibility and for um, kind of different different forms of expression of um, Muslim should, identity. Should I, should I clarify when I say <laughs> when I say orthodoxy? Um, I mean, like in the particular manner or um, of of the ritual prayers, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so for example. Um, the movements in prayer, what we say, what we can say or not say, reading scripture from the Quran in a particular language, uh -huh. i.e. Arabic, these things would continue to remain. Everything outside of that, I feel, as long as it brings you closer to God and it's not like heretical in some crazy way, I mean, I say do it. I mean, I'm a self-proclaimed Sufi myself, right? So I'm all about chanting, singing, meditation, um, you know, I'm not going to call it sleep deprivation, but getting up in the middle of the night to kind of like break that lower ego and offer prayers there. But I mean, I feel like meditation and chanting and singing are, are things that are no longer done in mainstream mosques, where if you look around the world, they still are, except mm -hmm. for a particular country, hmm. right? That's really interesting. I, I I see a parallel, actually, in, in what you just shared in our experience and the experience that I've been hearing from other um, not just emerging Jew um, kind of alternative Jewish communities, but um, but Jewish communities that formed um, kind of independent of existing institutions as alternatives around you know with a focus on justice or, or because of their politics around Israel Palestine, 
you know, in a previous generation. Um, and I've heard that for a lot of those folks, there, there really was a move away from traditional Jewish prayer and, and folks um, either because um, they didn't feel that comfortable with God or just, you know, weren't that into the ritual practice of, of prayer in Hebrew, that there's really been a swing back that a lot of the young folks, you know, um, for myself and a, a lot of the folks who are coming to New Synagogue Project um, services that are really longing for a more spiritual experience of traditional Hebrew prayers, of singing the, the prayers in Hebrew. And we incorporate um, some other elements, you know, we'll throw in a, a poem in, in English or, a, you know, a song in English. Uh, but I think a lot of folks will come to our services and maybe be surprised that uh, as um, that it's so traditional because uh, people are really looking to reconnect to um, those roots and 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 innovate on, you know, maybe we'll use new melodies um, and uh, bring in, uh, you know, contemporary songwriters that are kind of uh, applying new um, melodies to old prayers, um, but also um, using a lot of, of really old melodies as well. I was just going to jump in here and, and ask some some of the more sort of logistical questions about how you how you guys are organizing through. There's been a a fabulous conversation. I've really enjoyed hearing about the, the parallels and differences culturally and organizationally and so forth. There's a culture in the in the Christian side of things where there's all these support networks for people who are starting new churches mm -hmm. and everything. Do you all see that there there currently is or project that there might be something like this in the future in the context of Jewish and Muslim communities? Yeah, I, I do see that. I mean, it certainly exists, uh, as I said, um, because of, you know, what we're trying to do here in terms of expanding the tent um, around political diversity. I think that we don't have necessarily as much access, though we're, we're also very new. We haven't really sought out a lot of um, institutional funding yet. So so we'll kind of see how that goes. Um, I... Uh, but I also think it's really powerful for us to be funded by um, by our own community. And uh, so it's been really, really affirming and exciting to see that all of us who are coming together to form this new community really want to invest in it also and make it possible for us to hire our own rabbi and um, and do a lot of the things that, you know, previous generations did to come together. And, and you know, when they moved, move, you know, when a few generations back, moved out to the suburbs and formed the synagogue that I grew up in uh, because they all um, felt that that was really important. They wanted that to be a part of their family's lives. Maraj, mm -hmm. how about uh, with you? Is there a model for support and funding and guidance for the type of independent Muslim communities that you've been a part of? So um, I think we've either applied for or are thinking about applying for nonprofit status. I mean, it's been slow just because this is really grassroots. and. I don't ever expect what we're doing to become like this large institution. Now, having said that, um, every Ramadan we've had this agreement with um, St. Stephen's on 16th and in Newton. Uh, we great, meet there too sometimes. Great folks, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and we use their space um, from like 10 p.m. to 12 a.m. to do our nightly Ramadan, you know, the extra prayers known as um, Tarawih. And a lot of the folks live in the area and, you know, we pay them and we get a security guard because unfortunately you need security um and it came you know people were you know talking about like hey do we need our own space and can can we actually you know sustain this so i say that you know the intention wasn't to kind of create this space but i think it's going to happen um mm -hmm. because there's a demand for it and 
I think a lot of the folks now are putting roots down in D.C. proper and have no intention to leave. They're not the, the law students who are going to be here for three years and take off. Right. Um, I think there's folks who really want to want to stay. And if that's the case, you know, better buy now or rent now or find space now. I am a big believer of shared spaces, though. Yeah. And I think it's great that you're using some of the historically black churches and um, and we're using, you know, uh, St. Stephen's and other places. And I think it's it's great. Like, why do this? Right. It's like the Uber of of like religious spaces. Right. <laughs> well, also, and we're losing religious spaces, um, mm-hmm. houses of worship. You know, as the city has been gentrified, um, I just learned about this group called Sacred Spaces Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really trying to conserve the the limited um, space that we have left. In the past 10 years, they estimate that 40% of the houses of worship have been lost to, you know, being sold, you know, churches moving out to the suburbs, them being turned into condos and apartments. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a, I, I was at a meeting recently um, with a number of, of leaders. Um, it was actually in the in, in the wake of uh, the the shooting in, in Pittsburgh, um, and and actually the conversation turned very sharply to to you know the more immediate threat to our communities right now. This was mostly Christian leaders and and mostly from historically black churches as well. Um, we're saying you know our communities are under threat because of gentrification, yeah. the slow push or sometimes very fast push yeah. of gentrification, where it's not just parking but it's you know, as as a lot of communities have probably also seen and experienced when Muslim communities start up in the neighborhood that culturally people aren't used to that, or maybe the Muslim community has been there and new people are moving in and they don't like to hear the Adhan, uh, uh, the chanting that's happening at the different call to prayer times. Um, but, you know, for the even in the Christian context, the the bells ringing, people aren't aren't really excited about getting woken up, you know, earlier than their their brunch time or something, <laughs> you know, by by what many of us might think of as lovely church bells, you know. But the parking implications, the just the rent or or the the cost of maintaining these really old huge buildings um, when when you know the wolves are really at the door uh, from from folks who are trying to build up the area well yeah i found it to be really sad not not just because you know i'm a part of a um, religious community that wants um to meet in a house of worship but more broadly just to have public space where community can gather it's Mm -hmm. it's just um we're seeing less and less of it Mm -hmm. as the city's been privatized well, before we wrap up here, I wanted to um, first remind our, our guests that we've been listening to a very engaging conversation here with Lauren Spokane of the New Synagogue Project and Miraj Alaraha, the chaplain of George Washington University's Muslim Student Association. I'll ask if, if both of you have any events or activities uh, that you want to plug, uh, invitations, if people want to find out more about the groups that you're a part of. Uh, sure. So uh, you can learn more about us at newsynagogueproject.org. And uh, we actually have an event happening tonight, um, a big party awesome. uh, that we're doing in partnership with Jewish Currents, which is a leftist Jewish magazine uh, founded in the 1940s that just went through a reboot. Um, and it'll be tonight actually at St. Stephen's starting at 7 o'clock. There'll be live klezmer and jazz and um, jelly-filled donuts, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun. So I uh, hope you can come out. Very cool. Marash? Um So <clears throat> I just wanted to give a plug. If you check out um, facebook.com slash Yaro Collective, that's Y-A-R-O hyphen collective, 
that's the bit of an umbrella organization that kind of um, cross promotes and kind of handles all the different little breakout groups that are going on in DC for young Muslims. And if there's anything interesting, we try to cross promote it on there. Um, and if there's anyone who ever wants to join the the Scripture Circle, it's every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Um, in the George Washington University Marvin Center, room 406. Terrific. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. Again, we've been joined today by Miraj Alaraha, the chaplain of George Washington University's Muslim Student Association, and Lauren Spokane, one of the founders of the New Synagogue Project. Thank you both for being part of our show today. Thanks and so much. Shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller. You can catch Sue this evening at the Silver Spring Civic Building for the Inspired Story Slam with Amber Khan, who you may know as host of Interfaith Voices, that other interfaith radio show. Looking forward to a great event tonight. It's free, so come on out and bring your story 7 p.m. in the Fenton Room at the Silver Spring Civic Building in the center of downtown Silver Spring. Oh, and if you want to check out another evening of awesome interfaith music, uh, tomorrow night, November 29th, is the annual concert presented by the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington. This year's concert will be held at Washington Hebrew Congregation in Northwest D.C. That's Thursday, November 29th at 7.30 p.m. For tickets and other info, visit ifcmw.org. Thanks, as always, to our own musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher, for providing our theme for the show. And, of course, thank you, dear listeners, for spending your hour with us. You can find all our previous episodes of Interfaithish on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Even if you miss us live here on Tacoma Radio, you can still find our shows there. And be sure to subscribe, and each new Interfaithish episode will pop up right in your feed. Leave us a little rating or a review to help us share the good word about our show. And as always, if there's interfaith-ish that you wish to dish, you can write us an email at interfaith-ish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.